Today, we're honored to have Jim Downing, author of The Other Side of Infamy, My Journey Through Pearl Harbor and the World War. Jim's ship was the Navy battleship, the USS West Virginia, where Jim was a gunner's mate first class and ship's postmaster. Jim retired from the Navy with 24 years of service at the rank of lieutenant and has remained a utility player during his 27 years full-time staff with the Navigators, serving in positions ranging from deputy president to chair of the board of directors. Jim was married for 68 years to Marina, who passed away in 2010, and his parents of seven children. Jim is still known as Navigator Number 6. Jim, welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. We're honored. Thank you, and I'm honored to be here. This is awesome. We're in, we're in Jim's living room, and we're chatting away at the kitchen table where I think everything that's important has ever happened in life is at the kitchen table. And so I thought I'd go through... And, you know, Jim, just to kind of start out, take us back to your growing up and a bit about yourself in Plevna, Missouri. I was born at the beginning of World War I. My father worked in defense plants. Money was pretty scarce. So he had an uncle that lived right outside of Kansas City. So we got a job there so I could be delivered by my uncle. <laughs> and then... Um, my great-grandparents uh, bought a large parcel of land in Missouri directly out of the Louisiana Purchase. So we still have a section of that in the family today. So there's a small town by the name of Plevna. It was settled by Bulgarian immigrants, and apparently they have a town by that name, so they named it after their hometown in Bulgaria. I'll bet you Plevna, Missouri looks just like Plevna, Bulgaria. What do you bet? <laughs> well, I uh, some, one of my friends checked it out on the Google, and the population is now 40. It was 110 when I lived there, so it's <laughs> cut in half now. You know, it's, it's interesting to, to grow up in rural America, and I think about the times that, that you grew up. And I, I read your book recently, and you were talking about some of the early influences, uh, the Zane Gray and Horatio Alger books that you read. You know, as a young man, did you find that those books shaped part of your thinking? Yes, it did. Uh, books were scarce, and uh, I liked the Zane Gray books and uh, the Horatio Alger books. In fact, that's all we had. So I read them over and over and over again. As I mentioned in my book, that uh, the Horatio Alger books shaped, you know, that uh, if you do the right thing, you'll be a success. So uh, I found they were pretty much all the same, just changed the name of the characters in them. But the theme was that uh, somebody went into town, found a sponsor, uh, did the right things, and ended up as a success. So I kind of adopted that philosophy. I could be a success. You know, it's, it's an interesting thought process when you're in a smaller community looking for a role model. And for you, on access to the books, where did the books come from? Was there a local library? We had a, a small library, but um, these were family books. So I apparently had ancestors who were interested in Zane Gray. You know, it, and interestingly enough, my family had an interest in Zane Gray. So I made it through the entire series of Zane Gray books myself more than once. So we, we share that in common for sure. Um, you know, in, in, in your book, you know, rolling forward a little bit further down the road, you mentioned the influence of radio in your life and listening to the World Series on radio and listening to, I think it was Dempsey's fight on the radio. I think for many of the listeners, that's not in their vocabulary. Can you paint a bit of a mental picture of what that was like when you were listening to your heroes in the World Series on the radio? Yes, radio, public radio ownership at home developed in the early 1920s. And uh, my father, who was quite an entrepreneur, saw a future in this. So he got the uh, franchise for radio, home radio for a whole district. I used to go help with them, put up an antenna, used a big antenna from the barn to the house and uh, took a pickup to carry the batteries, three circuits in them. So I saw a radio being installed. The original radios did not have loudspeakers. 
so they had places to plug in several headsets, and the headsets could be taken apart. So there were six people with three <laughs> headsets, but everybody had their own headset in that. Now, radio has changed a lot. That They had a, a program for the day, paid no attention to clock. And uh, you, know, you never knew the time from them. When my book was finished, they had another. Well, as I mentioned, that um, one of the things that it really helped, that farmers had no market news. You know, they didn't know where to market their products. So the market reports were very important. And then weather reports were very important. And then um, one of the favorites was uh, Old Fiddler's Contest. They had the contest to bring the fiddle players on there. And uh, as I said, uh, no time schedule on. Start in the morning, finish in the uh, afternoon, or finish at night. It helped the farmers in their marketing. And then the main entertainment was uh, Amos and Andy, these two men that played six characters in there. So everybody made sure their uh, chores were done in time to listen to Amos and Andy. Then, of course, radio got more sophisticated, and um, there were no network news then. Later, network news came in. So it ushered in an entire new era in our lives and training. You know, for during that period around the 29 crash, did you guys get much on the radio from what was going on economically in the country? Yes, uh, we began to get uh, Wall Street reports. You know, things were added as it went on. So we had pretty good coverage on the, what was going on economically. Interesting. Did you guys happen to hear uh, the Grand Ole Opry? Yes, um, it was very uh, well received on radio probably the main musical program that was on. I spent a little time around the Grand Ole Opry myself through the years. Um, you know, in, in for you, you were, you were and still are a baseball fan. And I don't think for, for my generation and for many generations following, they have quite the impression of what effect radio had and the color that they painted by sound. Yes, well, um, I was a baseball at the Cardinals, being a Missourian, and uh, watched uh, the famous uh, Cardinals. They seemed in the 20s, the World Series seemed to be mostly between the Cardinals and the Yankees. So we were always glad when uh, the Cardinals won, which was not too many times during that time in there. But um, I remember Stan Musial said uh, he got more for one game then he got for a whole season when he started out. So uh, baseball didn't uh, pay a lot to their players in those days. But um, on the radio, of course, you couldn't follow the game visually. So it took an announcer that was very skilled and fast with his tongue to describe the plays, the home runs. And uh, in that, I remember they said, it's going, going, going. And then if it went over the fence, it's out. But that was a pretty famous phrase in those days, going, 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 as the announcer followed the ball. out. I've heard Amos and Andy on some of the, you can find them nowadays, I think, in podcasts and some of the other channels, the old replays, and the skill of those guys talking about and painting that mental picture. And you don't have the video to tell you the picture. Yeah. You have your, your imagination. You know, and for you guys growing up, did the Depression have much of an effect on your early life and your family? Yes, it did and on our community because there was uh, no cash, no jobs. Employment rate, I believe, is over 20% during that time. Now, my father uh, owned a general store, which included uh, groceries. And so uh, people found enough money to buy flour and stuff like that that they couldn't buy can raise on their farms, but there was never any extra money, and there was a lot of bartering went on. I remember we had a, a country doctor in our town, and people would come in, bring him canned fruit or vegetables, something to pay, they didn't have enough cash to pay him with. But it had a good effect on the community, that we looked out for each other in that time. 
And um, we didn't know uh, times of prosperity, so we didn't have anything to compare it to. Mm -hmm. So uh, it created a real community spirit. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think in those days, the machinery didn't really support really large farms. And so from my father grew up on a 40-acre farm in rural Tennessee, and they grew hogs, and they basically raised everything they ate. You know, so I suspect that was similar to your neighborhood as well. Yes, there were no tractors in those days, and all the implements were horse-drawn in there. But um, most everybody had a, a garden plot and could raise enough uh, to can and keep through the winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my great aunt still canned. So but before I go too far for the folks who are listening, uh, if you're looking to reach out to Jim, you can find him on Facebook on James Downing. And you'll know that you're on the right place is when you see the cover of his book there, which is The Other Side of Infamy, to repeat so people can take and figure that out. And speaking of that, how's your book tour going? We're very happy with it. Um, I try to divide it up as uh, at least half is ministry and half is book selling. And uh, we find that the most receptive market we have now is uh, in churches where I speak and then have a book signing after. So we uh, have a good return on that. Now, um, the uh, folks that uh, help me are here know how to advertise on television and other media. So that's a great help. So the greatest outlet for the book is Amazon. I'm the next largest customer as I distribute it wherever I go. So we're very happy. Um, don't know how to compare it with others, but we have sold 15,000 to date. So I'm happy for that distribution. So you're a best-selling author. Well, I'm in the upper 1%. That's a best-selling author. Yeah. Well, I, I read the book. It's a great message, and it's a great story. I, I like how the book took you through part of your journey. And in, in particular, you know, coming back to your career in the Navy, you know, there, there's that decision moment. And if you can, for the folks that are listening, take us to that conversation in, in your mind where you made the decision that said, I'm going to go join the Navy and leave home. What was that like? Yes, well, there was no future in our area for a high school graduate. And uh, I wanted to be a teacher. And so that was the way, direction I was heading in my career. But I had a friend who went in the Navy uh, two years before I did. And uh, he was on a submarine, got extra pay. His take-home pay was $90 a month. And every summer he'd ride home on a new Harley. So uh, I said his pay was $90 a month. My father was a bank president. His salary was $90 a month. So I could see uh, Curtis as a capitalist. So I thought there's one place I can get out, away from home, be on my own, save some money to go to college. In those days, there was no GI loans or any program like that. So if you had the money, you could go to college. If you didn't, you couldn't. So uh, I joined primarily to save money, so go to college and then uh, law school and enter politics. That was the career path I had planned out. You know, I think about the career path and with some of the folks that are paying for the college costs for their children. What was, in, in your memory, the cost of college in those days? Well, I remember even uh, when my oldest daughter went to college, the tuition was $15 per quarter. <laughs> it's, it's gone up a little since yeah. then. <laughs> That's impressive. Now, what, was, what would have been the closest college to you? We were in northwestern Missouri, and the, um, the state had uh, five universities for training teachers. One of them was at Kirksville. It's now known as Truman University, Kirksville, Missouri, just 40 miles from where I lived. Close enough, but that's a long hike in those days too. As you look through and, you know, and, and, and shifting gears from that decision where you decide to go in the Navy, what were some of the most vivid memories of your shipmates and experiences on board ship prior to Pearl Harbor? 
101 aboard ship, the battleship West Virginia, a full crew is 1,500, and that amounts about six square feet per person. <laughs> so the first thing I had to get used to is have my elbow touch somebody else, no matter where I went or what I did. So the lack of privacy was uh, quite an issue with me in that. And uh, a battleship is kind of complicated. I know that uh, as a recruit, we had an inspection one day, and the captain asked me, how do you find the food on the ship? Well, I mistakenly said, well, you, you go down this deck and then down that one that way. <laughs> Describe the letters and compartments you went through. <laughs> you know, and, and in those days, there was a, as I understand it, there was a fairly customary segregation between the officers and the enlisted. Was that true? Yes, it was uh, pretty well enforced, yes. We had on the ship what they called officer's country, and enlisted weren't supposed to go back there. But um, pretty early in my career, I became the assistant postmaster, later the postmaster, and the officers had special things for me to do, come and see them. So there was no barrier between me and the officer's country. As, as the postmaster, in reading your book, you also had a safe in there. Were you also payroll? Did you do payroll? I know, but uh, the only way to send money home was by money order in those days. Mm -hmm. So um, 40% of the crew or more sent part of their pay to their wife or somebody else every payday twice a month. So I had to write those uh, money orders one by one. You know, that was a, a big part of my job was not the mail, but the money orders. Mm -hmm. My father was 20 years Navy, and I'd ask him, I says, when you're at sea, how did you get mail? How did you take and deposit any money? So you've answered the part about the deposit. How did mail come on board ship when you're at sea? We had uh, three scouting planes on the ship. And uh, if we were in a range of land, why, we would make a trip in. Uh, we went out on maneuvers but then picked up the mail. So for about uh, three or four years, I rode that scouting plane. Now, it was an old, what they call a SOC-3, canvas wings, and a biplane, and shot off the catapult. So on the catapult, you gain speed from zero to 60 miles an hour and 60 feet. So the first time I went off that catapult, uh, I was really... Uh, you know, scared of what happened. All the liquid goes to the rear of your body. You feel like a pancake. <laughs> and then um, you try to reach out, but the G-source is still there and you can't move, you know, for a little bit. But after a, a few, um, a minute or two, everything is normal. I did that for, i say, about three years. Now, if we were in uh, Hawaii, we flew in the air station. Uh, they had a tractor farm tractor with a rope on it. So they'd pull a float out under the plane, put it on the plane, and the tractor would pull it apart, pull it up, put the ramp on the, on the runway in the air station. So every place we went, we did that. So we got the mail as often as we could. Uh, if we were in range of land. You know, it's, it's, I think about the mechanics of everyday life. So we talk about the excitement of taking off. Well, I think about as you come back under normal sea conditions to land to get picked up, that had to be fairly exciting as well. Yes, because you had no choice. You know, <laughs> You're committed. Out of fuel. And um, the only help we had was the ship would make a 90-degree turn and the wake behind would smooth the ocean for a little bit. So we'd come in and land in the wake of the ship turning. Now, I rode with the junior pilot, and um, the first two planes landed. Then the sea was pretty rough again when we came in. But once you committed yourself to landing, you go ahead. And uh, when the plane came down hard, it was like a sack full of tin cans. And um, I remember one time, well, uh, I was in the passenger seat, 
And my job was to raise the flaps, you know, after we landed, like a sprocket on a bicycle. So um, the minute he hit the uh, water, he said to raise the flaps so he could taxi on up to the ship. So one day I was a little slow because he hit so hard, it knocked the breath out of me. <laughs> and um, he kind of said, come on, get the flaps up. I said, well, I will as soon as I get my breath back on this. <laughs> So the, the taxi up alongside the ship and last, uh, lifted up on a crane. Exciting times. Uh, to, to get the mail, you were a very committed postmaster for sure. Yes. Well, I think um, some Napoleon, well, there's Napoleon or somebody said that mail is more important than food for morale on a ship. So getting the mail had a high priority. I still have the letters my father mailed to my mother when he was at sea. So yes, they were important, they were saved. That's pretty impressive. So we talked about those experience a little bit and, and specifically about the mail, but going back to, to Pearl Harbor on December 7th, you were on shore leave after a 13-day patrol. Right. And newly married to Marina, and you were staying with friends in the Kali'i Valley in Honolulu. And I looked on uh, Google Earth this morning. That seems to be about five miles up the hill yes. from Fort Island. And you were having breakfast, and it says with a sm fresh smell of bacon. And I, I presume eggs. Didn't read that part. And for the folks, you know, you, you had an announcement over the radio of the attack. And from what I read, you could see the black smoke. But if you can, take the folks that are listening to that point where you got the first glimpse of what was going on in the harbor and what went through your mind at that moment? The minute we heard the explosions, we uh, turned on the radio and uh, the announcer said, we've been advised by Army and Navy intelligence that the island of Oahu is under attack. And he said, the enemy has not been identified, though so stay tuned. So two or three minutes later, he came on and said, the enemy has been identified as Japan. And of course, said, everybody returned to your stations and all. We'd already gotten on our uniforms with the guests at the house. And we're on our way, you know, a couple of minutes on down the harbor that morning. Kalei Valley, where we lived, uh, has high mountains on each side. So we couldn't see what was going on. But as soon as we got out of the valley, we could see the harbor with the ships on fire and smoke. Now, in those days, there was no bridge from the main part of Hawaii to Ford Island where the ships were tied up. So um, I took a ferry across. The ships were tied up in tandem with the West Virginia being outboard of the battleship Tennessee. So I got aboard my ship by going on the Tennessee. I trained out a gun barrel and slid down the barrel under my ship. All we could do at that point, all of our guns were immobile, was to take care of the fire was the main thing. And then the dead and wounded that needed attention. Was the, the ship, was it sunk by then? Yes, uh, Pearl Harbor is a, a shallow harbor, about 40 feet where we were tied up. So there were only five feet of water under the ship. We took nine aerial torpedoes. The ship sunk immediately, but it was in the mud, so it was okay. upright in there, and uh, everything above the waterline was on fire. You know, I, I think about the sailors that were jumping off ship to try to escape the problem on ship, and the problem didn't leave them when they jumped because the problem was in the water as well, was it not? Yes. Each battleship carries about a million gallons of crude oil to fire the boilers. So the Arizona, after it was hit early in the uh, attack, oil spilled out. The fire was so intense that the oil burned on top of the water. So some of the sailors were blown off. Uh, as they went down, they got this oil on their bodies. Then when they came up, there was a thin film and they turned into human torches. So that was the uh, uh, worst thing I saw that morning was these sailors that would surface and then immediately uh, burn to death with the fire on there. You know, I, I trying to paint the picture in my mind, 
were the the aircraft that were doing the gun runs on the ships tied were they really apparent to you and visually apparent to you yes the japanese used uh, 350 aircraft in the two waves that gave in that morning and the um, first japanese plane i saw was flying low and slow uh, toward me when they got at the right angle, the machine gunner cut loose, but the pilot didn't bank far enough, and so the bullets went right over my head. So, of course, I saw the plane as it came in, and so low that you could almost tell the color of the pilot's eyes. That's pretty low. You know, I, I think about, uh, I've only been shot at one time, and I remember it very well, and I suspect that those sounds don't go away. I was afraid the next pilot would be more accurate came in. So the war became very personal at that point. <laughs> and um, there's no place to hide. Yeah, Fort Island's pretty bare. I was out there a couple of years ago on Fort Island looking around, and still not a lot out there on Fort Island. So you've, you've come from your house, and you're trying to take and save your ship and your shipmates. And how long did that last? How long were you fighting the fire on board ship? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. It, uh, after the last reconnaissance plane came over, I was kind of hungry. I had a friend on the Tennessee that was undamaged. I said, uh, do you think you could get the galley to give me a sandwich? So he took me up. I looked at the clock on the wall. It was five minutes to 12. If you had asked me what time it was what, I'd have said uh, 8.30, because the events were so swift and passed together that time just kind of stood still. You know, when you were fighting the fire, you were fighting the fire, as I understand it, with hoses from the Tennessee. Is that correct? Yes, got a fire hose from the Tennessee. You know, I, I think about the, the magnitude of the fire, and I'm thinking about the amount of water you would have to have to do anything to make a difference. Did you feel like you were making much headway? Well, that, that's a great question, too, and uh, I, I reflect on it. A battleship is fireproof you know, by the nature of what it's for. But to keep it looking nice, we paint it every year. So uh, there was probably in places where the paint was from a half inch to three-fourths, and uh, it, you couldn't put it out. I put the hose on it, put it out, go away, flash up again with a hot metal in there. So it was a real job. In fact, uh, we could just control certain areas to cool, and the rest had to burn itself out. By noon, all the fires were out, that's, except on the Arizona. Yeah, that's impressive. That's how, how many people do you think were on deck with you fighting that fire? I was the only one. The word had been given to abandon the ship, but uh, um, I felt there's still something to do. So. Uh, Later, other people were in the cabin board, but I was the only one that was fighting the fire. That's pretty impressive to think about what's going through your mind as you're sitting there. You know, you're, you're, you kind of, there's nobody else here. It's, I think it must have been noisy. Was it noisy? Well, it was, a, it was a lot of odor. I don't remember the noise too much uh -huh. uh, because uh, the, the planes, the bombs, torpedo bombers, they uh, did their job in the first 11 minutes, mm -hmm. and then we had the high-level bombers after that. But, uh, yeah, every time a bomb or a torpedo went off, why, there was a, a huge explosion. But it was the, uh, the smell that impressed me more than it was the sound of that gunpowder going off. Not a good memory, that smell. Yeah. Um, but um, the reason I had the fire hose on... Every ship has uh, some what we call ready ammunition at the gun site so we could answer in a hurry. Most of the ammunition is in the uh, ammunition storage below. So every one of those uh, ready ammunition boxes was filled with live ammunition. So I was afraid as the flame came up that they would have a secondary explosion. By the end. So my job or my thought was to keep the fire away from us ready ammunition boxes. And as far as I know, none of them exploded. So I guess I was successful in that. You know, I, I think about 
what many may think of what ammunition looks like. And we're used to ammunition looking like a normal cartridge, you know, brass cartridge in the rear and the round in the front and a firing pin. That's not what you were dealing with in those days, was it? No, the, the smaller guns we had were five inch. So we had both broadside guns and anti-aircraft guns with the five inch uh, cartridge. And so the cartridge was five inch in diameter and um, probably five times that much in length. Mm -hmm. So that was cartridge actually on top. Yeah. The big, the main guns are the ones that had the projectile in the powder bags, I, I assume. Yes, the, um, the only one set of our guns were anti-aircraft. The others were surface guns. Mm -hmm. Our 16-inch guns couldn't elevate high enough to fight an airplane. I'm sure the pilots were thrilled about that. <laughs> I, don't think so. I wouldn't want a 5-inch pointed at me, much less a 16-inch. You know, after that time frame, and you had some time and distance what do you think the most profound change was in the way that you viewed the Navy and the outlook on life after that point? Well, as I try to summarize my emotions that day, the first thing was surprise. No satellites in those days. Radar was not accepted as being accurate yet. So we didn't know they were Japanese until we saw them you know, with our eye. Surprise. And as I mentioned, I was afraid that the next uh, pilot would be more accurate as he crossed over where I was. So I was afraid. And then uh, I was angry that our leadership, that uh, our political and military leaders would let us get in a situation like that. And then um, uh, the greatest, strongest emotion was pride in the way our men responded. Without leadership, without training, everybody instinctively did what was needed to be done in taking care of the dead and wounded and the fires and uh, stuff like that. So everybody was a hero that morning as far as I was concerned. So I think that my, my strongest impression as I looked back at Pearl Harbor was how our men reacted after surprise you know, a treacherous thing that the Japanese did. Now, we only shot down 29 planes, but uh, the Japanese reported that 74 more were damaged when they got back to their carriers. So a lot of the 74, they just rolled over the side because they could not be repaired. So one day, this proud fleet that I bragged about, sitting there, you know, um, I could do anything. And here we got caught, and most of the ships didn't get off a shot. So for you, rolling the time forward, you became a commander of your own ship. But as a commander, based on your experience from Pearl, do you think it changed the way that you commanded your, your ship? Yes, I can tell you one incident. Uh, during the Cold War, the um, Russians liked to play chicken. <laughs> with the American ships. The Mediterranean is uh, uh, in, in international waters, so any country has the right to have a ship there. But sometimes the Russians would put a ship in the middle of our formation and join it, just sail along. So um, the Admiral commanding uh, that Mediterranean fleet took a cruiser, put tires down the side all along and his job was to push that Russian ship out of the formation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did the tires help? Uh, yeah, I guess they helped managing the <laughs> ship. But uh, as a captain of the ship, I'm operating in the Aleutians one summer, pretty close to Russia, Shemi, and not part of the Aleutian chain. And one night a ship came in my direction, fast speed. In the ocean, ships have right-of-ways like just cars do. So you keep the ship on your port side. The ship on your port side has to give way. So this high-speed ship tried to get me to give the, the right-of-way way, you know, even though I had it made chicken. So I told the Senate General Quarters, got everybody at the gun stations, and said, we're going to track him. When he gets a dangerous uh, distance, 
we'll shoot a warning shot over the bow, at his bow, and if he doesn't stop, we'll just shoot, turn loose on him. So I had my crew alert. This was about midnight. Later, my operational commander in Alaska found out about it, called me in and said, uh, you will cause an international incident. And uh, I said, well, uh, I was at Pearl Harbor. I know that weakness invites aggression, and I will never give the runaway away to somebody else. I'll shoot him down before I let him do it. And he was kind of a shirk of knowledge on that. So I said, now, the only answer is for you to give me air cover out here. Let them decide what to do on this. So during the attack, I made a resolve. If I ever get in a position of authority, we will never be caught napping again. Now, I still have that philosophy today that um, an army officer in um, Hawaii there got the report from his radar that there were ships coming in. Uh, there were airplanes coming in. He said, well, I read in the newspaper that there's a bunch of B-17s arriving today. It's probably them. Don't worry about it. Well, the thing was that the um, B-17s were coming to the States on the east, the Japanese from the west. So that should have been a, a clue. So um, I don't have any authority in the Navy. I have some influence. But I don't want anybody in a decision-making position that hasn't been in combat. Officers who have not been in combat are too optimistic. Officers that have been in combat, they don't take a chance. So that's a change that's been made with me that I advocate that nobody that has not had combat experience should be in a decision-making position. My background's Army. We had garrison commanders and we had combat commanders, and they weren't the same. And there's a reason. You know, unfortunately now, I think we have a lot of combat veterans after 20-plus years of engagement. You know, for you, we touched on it. You rotated out of the Navy and retired, and then you went with the Navigators, which had been influential in your life for what seemed like most of your Navy career. What disciplines from the Navy did you bring to the Navigators to help that organization grow and prosper? Well, as uh, we mentioned earlier, I was number six, so the organization was pretty small when there were only six of us in it. But um, I would say that um, I grew professionally in the Navy and uh, as a Christian side by side through those years. And um, there's a lot in the Bible about uh, military people. You know, the, the uh, Christians are compared to military people throughout the Bible. So at every stage of my growth as a person, I passed that on to navigators. Um, when I became the captain of the ship, I had a crew of about 125. And um, when I came with the navigators, I had employees about 125. So I found out that that was perfect training for what I did in the navigators, what I'd had in the, in the Navy. So um, I think, um, you know, everybody's in the military, including you, agrees that you learn some things about discipline there that are in good stead the rest of your life. You certainly know what good times look like, and you look, know what times that aren't so good look like, and you have a frame of reference. You know, I think about you guys refitted your ship. You had to go back to, was it Bremerton, Washington, to get your ship refitted? Right. And then you rotated right back out to sea. Yeah. Um, what I did, um, I stayed with the ship. It took an, a year and a half to get it raised and back to Bremerton. I got orders to a new, new battleship in South Dakota. Came back to Washington, D.C. to go to school. At the end of the, um, uh, when I graduated, there were one instructor short. They picked me to fill that vacancy. So I rode out the war uh, in Washington, D.C. That's a dangerous place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> After um, uh, 43 
And um, as I went to school every day, I rode a streetcar. He still had streetcar tracks in the city, and that was kind of dangerous. <laughs> but you know, I didn't go to see again until I left uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. When did you pick up your command? What year uh, was that? Pick up... Uh, command of your ship. That was uh, 1950. Okay. That I became captain now. I think about those days, and... Part of my my interest in some of my questions here is my father was was Navy as well. And so I can remember the good days is when he'd come home from being at sea. And, of course, as a little kid, you know, the mom would always say, just wait till your dad gets home. So it was with mixed thoughts when, when dad came home, whether it was a good thing or a not-so-good thing. And my father was a chief petty officer, as you were at one point in your career as well. You know, for the folks that are listening and, you know, the experience that you had in the Navy and the experience that you had in, in the Navigators, what advice would you offer to to either uh, CEOs or guys running companies nowadays that you think stood the test of time? What would you what would you recommend to them? Well, there's um, a few people that are so talented, they're going to succeed no matter what the opposition is. But that's not the most of people. And I have a four-point advice that I give to uh, college graduates and to people in uh, retirement homes, everything in between. And uh, it's four words uh, that begin with the letter D. The first is, discover your gift. I believe everybody has something unique about them that they're good at, they're successful at it, they enjoy it, and everybody should find out what that is and then do it. So the first word is discover your gift. Not many people have done that. And talking to college students, I say, is what you're studying enhancing your gift? Well, if they don't know what the gift is, why well, it's kind of a waste, I think. The second word is... Um, Dedicate your gift to a higher cause than yourself. I observe that there's a high suicide rate among those who use their gifts for their own um, uh, pleasure and prosperity. I think about um, Billy Graham. He was offered a, a billion dollars a year to go on late-night TV. He could be a, um, a Shakespearean actor on Broadway. He's a brooch for that. He's the only evangelist that has a star in the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. He could do that in any job he wanted. His gift is communication. I think he's glad he dedicated that to a higher purpose than himself. Mm -hmm. I admire the Gates Foundation. You know, that uh, uh, they have given for uh, uh, 25 charter schools in New York that they finance. Uh, they do more for overseas medicine and health than all of the other foundations put together. So I admire people that use their gifts to help others. Mm -hmm. The third thing is um, to develop your gift to the maximum. Before we got into politics, I was a fan of... Um, don't tell me I can't believe his name, Dr. Ben... Um, ben Carson. Ben Carson, greatest brain surgeon in the world. And uh, he used his talent to teach others. And, of course, while he could do that, he was a strong Christian. He would share his faith with others. The fourth uh, word is uh, deploy, which is a military term, and that is uh, use your gift. I spoke on this to a, a battalion at Fort Carson here where I live in Colorado Springs. At the end, I said, um, who do you think is the most fulfilled person in this battalion? I didn't get much answer. So uh, I said, well, if I were trying to decide, it would be a toss-up between the chaplain and the commanding officer because both have discovered their gift, they've dedicated their gift, they developed their gift, and they're about to deploy it. I spoke at a stand-up mic. The minute I finished, the commanding officer came over, um, put his hand on my shoulder and pointed in my face and said, 
I am the most fulfilled person in this battalion, and don't you forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually served in a battalion out there as well, out at Fort Carson. So understand, through your career, you've seen some gifted leaders and gifted people that run businesses. What are the one or two smartest things you ever saw a commander or a business guy do in his career? Well, in the military, I think that um, uh, civilian companies, you know, have got a lot of smart people, but they can learn from the military. I've had a lot of contact with senior officers, generals in Army, um, and admirals in the Navy. And um, I've tried to see what do you find in common among them. And uh, the one thing I find in common is, is they say, if you look out for your men, they will look out for you in battle when you're depending on them. So uh, senior officers are very conscious of the needs of the people they're uh, leading. I invited a general to have lunch on my ship one day. He said, well, let's take away from the, your crew. In fact, you're entertaining me. And I said, no, it won't. He said, well, if it would, I wouldn't take it. He wouldn't even take a free meal. The other thing I've noticed, they're, they're good listeners. I talked to many senior officers. Now, their mind is probably 100 miles away, but they make you think, I'm listening. Every word you said, it's important. <laughs> so they're good listeners. I don't know that much about civilian leadership, but um, what I have uh, studied, that um, uh, it's also true that the top leader, he better be aware of the needs of the people that's working for him, and their needs come first. I actually worked for a couple of general officers during my, my time, and so I got to see leadership from the top down, and it was absolutely spot on that the general officer would go to training, and the first guy I'd talk to is a private, and go, what are we doing here today, and have you had a warm meal? That was his first question, and we were last in chow line every time. So, yeah, those things don't go away, those methods. And that connection, um, I uh, did some uh, book selling at the Pentagon about three weeks ago, and uh, I counted uh, 10 admirals, you know, from one star to four to three star. They were in line to get my signature. So it's the first time in my neighborhood associated with the military that I've had an admiral standing in line to get my signature. <laughs> <laughs> Finally had to happen. <laughs> you know, for you, you're a best-selling author. What do you got going on over the next five or ten years? Are you going to do another book? Yes. Um, I'm 103. I don't know how long I will last. But um, I feel that my book has a message for everybody. And I can touch more lives through the book than I ever can in person. So my uh, objective is to get in the hands of as many people as possible. Does your book tour end at some point? Are you still going to be on the speaking circuit? Thursday I go to Florida, come back one day, go to San Diego. Then we're working on things for the state of West Virginia and the state of Arkansas. So I think with the help of these good people here that we'll probably be busy the last year, this year anyway. For the folks listening, it's an, an impressive body of work that you've accomplished in your life. And, you know, and I like the part where we go back to the early years and how you grew up and, you know, the influences in your life and, and you know, going forth and working hard and with the, I think, you know, they'll say it's the American dream. You work hard and you'll do well. I think you take care of others, and that's always been my concept, is take care of those that take care of you, and, and that, that works pretty well. You know, for you, I don't know, many folks have had a defining moment in, that, in their career. What do you think is the smartest thing you ever did in your career? I've been asked a lot of questions. I don't think uh, I've ever heard that one before, so I don't have an instant answer to it. I think it's... Um, it was a big decision for me to make a career out of the Navy. That wasn't the way I was headed, you know. I wanted to save money to go to college. But I found out in the Navy, this was a mission field. So uh, 
I decided to abandon my career, which included uh, trying to go for president of the United States. You know, I read in the civics book, anybody can be president. So I said, well, I'm anybody, so I'll try that. So the most defining moment is when I abandoned that ambition and decided to give my life to other people. You know, I think about that, and I, you know, we, we talk about what goes on in our mind as we talk to ourselves. Do you remember the conversation you were having with yourself when you said, you know what, I'm going to do this Navy thing? Do you remember what that was like? Yes, well, after I'd been in the Navy, you know, I, I grew up like most Midwesterners, where you had a church, everybody went to church and was baptized and so forth. But I had not had a meaningful experience. So after having a meaningful experience and being born again, my ambition changed. So to me, helping people in the Navy was more important than running for office. As you went through your career and you have the influences, what do you think was one or, one or two of the best pieces of advice you ever received during your career? I didn't want to preach a sermon here, but um, in grade school, we used to have baccalaureate sermon along with other academic speeches at graduation. So one day this pastor gave advice to our class. He said, now after telling all this, the best advice I could give you is get acquainted with Jesus Christ. He will prove to be the best friend you'll ever have. I took that advice. That's the best advice I ever received and the best advice I could give. I think about that as, you know, for the folks that are listening, and there are those that it will resonate with now and those that will resonate with maybe later or somewhere along the journey. But I can't tell you how much I appreciate and am honored to have you on the podcast. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been my pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thanks a lot.